sing right now. But we should pray as we come to the word of God once again. Precious Father, how we bless your name today. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you in worship. And we pray, Lord, that indeed our lives would not just be uh, given up to song, but would be given up to glorifying you in every way through all of the decisions that we make in every day and how we express how much we value you through the way we live our lives. Lord, may you be glorified in us and may you help us to be the disciples that you long for us to be. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, since the first of the year, we've been examining and explaining the biblical basis for our church mission statement in order to remind us of what we are supposed to be all about, according to the Lord. In the first week of the series, we looked at what Jesus said was the first and the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said there is no commandments greater than these. We looked also at what is known as the Great Commission, which was given to Jesus' disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew as he passed his mission on to them and then down to us, the mission that Jesus came on to seek and save the lost. And so he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age." So the product that we as a church are called to produce is disciples, which we've described as fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the following weeks, we've been striving to flesh out what a fully devoted follower, a disciple, actually looks like. The job description of a disciple, as it were. So our mission statement, again, is loving God and loving people as we grow, serve, and share the good news of Jesus Christ. We've seen, first and foremost, that disciples are to be lovers of God or, or worshipers because worship is the expression of what it is that we value. Worship is more than just singing songs on Sunday morning, although worshiping in song is one of the easiest and the most basic commands given in the scriptures. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. But worship really is the expression, as I said, of what we treasure, what we value, and we demonstrate what we treasure by how we invest our time, how we invest our thoughts, how we invest our talents, and so on. So in essence, worship really is the battery that fuels the Christian life. By becoming a fully devoted follower of the Lord Jesus, we demonstrate our love for him. Second purpose of 
A disciple is to love people. That's fellowship, building mutually supportive relationships with other believers. We saw that strong relationships, whether with people or even with God himself, require time and effort to cultivate them. The third purpose for a disciple, we said, is spiritual growth or discipleship, to be a little bit redundant, that involves investing in our thought lives and our character development as well. As we desire to strive uh, and think and act more and more like Jesus on a consistent basis. And we do this in cooperation with the Holy Spirit as we align our thoughts with God's thoughts by the diligent study and obedient application of the Bible in our daily lives. Remember the great commandment says, teaching them to obey all things whatsoever I have commanded you. When we love someone, We want to be like them, right? Well, last time we saw that another way that we can worship God acceptably is by serving him, and we can love people by using our talents, our abilities, and the gifts that God has provided for us through the power of the Holy Spirit. God empowers us to be his hands and feet in the world. And we saw last time that God uniquely gifts every believer to accomplish his plan. His plan requires that we see ourselves through his eyes, neither as too important nor as too insignificant. God's plan also requires profound unity in the same way that the parts of the physical body make up the whole. God's plan also requires diversity. And in the same way that the whole body is made up of various different parts, the healthy body of Christ, the church, is made up with people with all kinds of different experiences, educations, abilities, talents, and gifts. And we looked at a partial list given by Paul in Romans 10 that would include preachers, servants, teachers, encouragers, supporters, leaders, and caregivers. As I said last week, this list is not exhaustive, but it's representative of the different kinds of needs that a healthy church might have. And so now as we move on to the fifth clause and purpose of our mission statement, we actually come full circle back to the start of making disciples, that is, winning converts to Christ by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. This fifth purpose is evangelism. It comes from the Greek euangelikon, uh, which means good news or glad tidings, specifically the glad tidings of salvation made possible through Jesus Christ. The Greek lexicon, though, really fleshes this this definition out to a wonderful extent. The glad tidings of the kingdom of God, soon to be set up, and subsequently also of Jesus the Messiah, the founder of this kingdom. After the death of Christ, the term comprises also the preaching of and concerning Jesus Christ as having suffered death on the cross, 
to procure eternal salvation for those who will be a part of the kingdom of God, but as restored to life and exalted to the right hand of God in heaven, thence to return in majesty to consummate the kingdom of God. Wow, that's a heavy definition, isn't it? Okay. Thus, as the messianic rank of Jesus was proved by his words, his deeds, and his death, the narrative of his sayings, deeds, and death of Jesus Christ came to be called, they write, the good news or the glad tidings, the euangelion or the gospel. So to proclaim the gospel or to evangelize is to proclaim the grace of God manifest and promised in Christ Jesus. And so Central Bible Church is an evangelical church. And I mean that in the strict sense of the word. There's a lot of churches that call themselves evangelical and are far from it. But as a church and as individuals who make up the church, we must be sharing the good news that through Jesus Christ, a transformed life is not only possible, but, but absolutely necessary and desirable. Everyone must be born again in order to reach heaven, according to Jesus. So our message title today is Disciples are Witnesses, and we are going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me there. What we need to know, as our big idea today, is simply this. God's plan of salvation requires human witnesses. The way God has chosen to work in the world, the way he makes his plan of salvation known is through human witnesses. Okay? He could have chosen just to save people and take them to heaven. It's not the way he chose to do it. Okay? Once in a great while, he knocks somebody off their donkey. <laughs> That's not the normal way that God saves people. He saves people through the witness of others. Okay? And a witness is a noun. Okay? It's a person who observes an event or a happening. And then it is also a person who makes a statement about what they know or what they have personally seen. That is, they give testimony. And God wants every Christian Every person who's recognized their sin has realized that Jesus died for those sins, has repented and has accepted his sacrifice on their behalf and made him the Lord of their life. He wants every one of us to be ready, willing, and able to share our personal experience with Jesus and what we have come to know about him. That's why we're encouraged in 1 Peter chapter 3. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Set him apart as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. 
but do this with gentleness and respect. Are we ready, willing, and able to share what we know about God and what we have personally seen him do in our lives and in the lives of others? That's what it means to be a witness. And God's plan of salvation requires human witnesses. And to see why this is so, we're going to be here in the first chapter of the book of Acts. Um, In the first 11 verses, we're going to find four important facts about the witnessing process. First, we are reminded that the Bible is the written record of God's relationship with humanity. Okay? This is what this book is. It is the written record of God's relationship with the human beings that he has created. So verse 1 of Acts 1 begins in this way. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And after his suffering, he presented himself to them, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. What is this former book that the writer of Acts is referring to? Well, it's the Gospel of Luke, okay? He was inspired to introduce that gospel by writing, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And with this in mind, since I myself has carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Okay? These are uh, Luke, the physician, who is considered an excellent historian. These are the purposes behind the writing of the Gospel of Luke and the book of the Acts. So the Bible records each of its human authors' personal experiences and interactions with God. They wrote down for us what they observed, what they learned, and particularly what God spoke to them or inspired them to tell us. And God supernaturally uh, superintended the writing of the Bible while still using the personalities and the life experiences of each of those witnesses in order to tell us all that we need to know about the Lord and his ways. So Jesus' closest disciple, John, shares his intent in writing his gospel in verse 31 of chapter 20. His intent has an evangelical purpose. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 1 Corinthians, we find God's purpose in recording people's life experiences for posterity. Paul's inspired to write, these things happened as a warning to us. 
so that we would not crave evil things like they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put the Lord to the test as some of them did and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble as some of them did. And they were then destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples to us. And they were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. The Bible is the written record of God's relationship with humanity. And how, frankly, we have failed that relationship so many times. The written record can be divided into five sections. The Old Testament reveals God's standards and our desperate problem. In the Old Testament, we find the character of God revealed and the call to be holy as he is holy. Unfortunately, all of us fall woefully short of that standard, just as he knew we would. And so he gave his laws and his commandments to men, not to enable them to please him and earn their salvation, but rather to force them to recognize and acknowledge their need for forgiveness and God's mercy and to cause them to desire to come to him and to live with him in a dependent love relationship. Paul was inspired to explain in Romans, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law, by following the Ten Commandments or any of the other commandments in there. Rather, it is through the law that we become conscious of our sin. And when we recognize our sin, we also recognize then our need for a Savior. And the Old Testament predicts and gives the identifying marks of that Savior. So in the New Testament, the Gospels reveal God's solution to our problem. They record the revelation of this good news, the outworking of the predestined time of God to redeem for himself a people through his one and only Son, our Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, the, the Messiah or the Christ. He said of himself, the Son of Man, that was his favorite way of describing himself because it was a messianic title from the Old Testament, by the way. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And he said in John 10, I've come so that they may have life and may have it abundantly. One paraphrase uh, renders that verse really well. I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. So the Gospels record the entrance of the Son of God into space and time in human form, and the record of his life and his message, his death and his resurrection, along with his promise to return one day again to judge the world. The Gospels reveal that Jesus is the only way to heaven, the only truth worth heeding, and the only means to eternal life. 
The book of the Acts reveals the spread then of that good news. It's the record of the actions and the words of those who had witnessed the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus as they began to tell the world the meaning of those events. The epistles are then the explanation of God's plan. These are letters that more fully explain the person and the meaning of the mission of Jesus, and they describe God's enabling of this abundant new life through the giving of the Holy Spirit. The epistles also explain how believers in Jesus should then live our lives as a result. And then finally, we have the book of the Revelation, and that reveals the culmination of God's plan. That book details Jesus' plan to return to the world to set it right and to judge those who've rejected his good plan. So the Bible is the written record of God's relationship with humanity. It is the most important witness to his dealings with us, and we must always point people to the truth that it contains. But in addition to this prophetic record, God wants us to be able to communicate our personal experiences in the redemption process because God's plan of salvation requires human witnesses. Second fact to keep in mind as we witness is this. God promises us divine power as his witnesses. Okay? God promises divine power to his witnesses. Look at verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, Jesus gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were excited, thinking the kingdom was coming right then. Going to overthrow the Romans and be a good time. He said to them, no, it is not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Understand, my friends, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the same Holy Spirit that enabled the disciples to do many signs and wonders in order to authenticate their message about Jesus Christ, the same Holy Spirit who enables us to have victory over sin is the same Holy Spirit that has been sent to live within each of us that is trusted in the Lord Jesus for our salvation. And it is he who will empower our words and our witness with divine authority to pierce the hearts of unbelievers, to convict them of sin and convince them of the truth about Jesus and what he has done for them. That's the Holy Spirit's job in the world. And that's why Paul prays for the Ephesians I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. And it says in Acts 4, with great power 
the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Effective witnesses require then four characteristics. Okay? The first of these is conviction. We have to be utterly convinced that the story we are telling is absolutely true. We have to fervently believe that God's plan of salvation is the only way to get to heaven. If there's another way for someone to get saved, whether that's another religion or whether that's just their own personal goodness, then there's no real need for a savior. I mean, if people are just basically fairly good, right? If most everyone is basically a pretty good person, then there's no real reason for us to share what we've personally witnessed about Jesus, is there? The psalmist writes, and we have to believe that all your words are true and all your righteous laws are eternal. We need to have the conviction that God's story and our story is true and also that it is incredibly important. And we have to be prepared to clearly share it. Clearly and coherently share this story. So the second thing we need is clarity. Our story and our explanation of God's story has to make sense to people. We got to be able to tell what we know about the Lord and his plans, what we've seen and heard him do in us and for us in a logical, clear, and understandable way. That's another reason, by the way, why we study the Bible and why we read books on evangelism, why we might take a class to be able to be better prepared to share. But we have to have the correct message of the gospel as well. We have to get the good news right. I don't know how many of you watched the Super Bowl the past two years, but in each of those games, a supposedly Christian group in, invested multiple millions of dollars to present ads with imagery suggesting to viewers that Jesus didn't teach hate and that he gets us. According to their website, the message was, Jesus washed the feet of friends and enemies. That's incorrect, by the way. He only washed the feet of his friends. No ego or hate. He humbly loved his neighbors. How can we do the same? The problem with those commercials, unfortunately, is they present a thoroughly woke Jesus whose only message is love and affirmation without any sort of a call to repent of the sins that the Bible says will disqualify people from having a place in heaven. The Bible is clear that Jesus loved people, but not without warning them of the danger of remaining in unrepentant sin. He did lovingly interact with sinners, but he didn't merely just hang with them and approve of 
and applaud all of their sins and their, 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 their issues. In fact, when Jesus and his disciples were asked, well, why do you eat with tax collectors and drink with sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, because he couldn't find anyone who's righteous anyway, but I've come to call sinners, what? To repentance, to stop it, to turn from their sin and turn to him. As he began his public ministry, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. By the way, that was his forerunner's message as well. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And even though he told the Pharisees who questioned him on what should be done about a woman caught in adultery, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And at this, those who began heard that, began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. But you know what he said next? Go now and leave your life of sin. Stop it. (laughs) Don't keep doing what you've been doing. said that every Christian must be ready, willing, and able to share their personal experience with the Lord and what they've come to know about him. We need conviction and clarity. That's what it means to be ready. We're to show love and concern for people, but we cannot affirm them in their sin. The Bible is quite clear on this. To do that is to have a part in their ending up in hell. third characteristic that an effective witness must have is courage. That's a hard message to tell people, isn't it? You're lost in your sin and you need to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. That's not an easy thing to say to people. That's why we need courage. It takes bravery to stand up and testify to what you've seen whether you're a witness in a criminal case or whether you're sharing what Jesus Christ has personally done for you to a friend, to a family member, to a co-worker, to open your mouth, it might cost you something. might cost you some ridicule. might cost you loss of status in people's eyes. It might end up straining or even severing a relationship there's a fair chance that sharing Christ will cause you some heartache or some hardship, but Paul encourages, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, and be strong. In fact, tradition has it that only one of Christ's apostles died a natural death. The rest were martyred for their faith. They were killed because they would not remain silent about Jesus and what he had done for them. 
They went from hiding fearfully in an upper room after Jesus' death to becoming bold proclaimers of Jesus' resurrection after the Holy Spirit did come upon them on the day of Pentecost. Paul, the persecutor of the early church, became a bold proclaimer of the gospel who wrote to the Philippians of the possibility of dying for his witnessing efforts. Philippians 1, 20 and 21, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have, what, sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Do we have the courage to be witnesses for Jesus? That's what it means to be willing to share. Fourth characteristic of an effective witness is credibility. We have to be credible witnesses. A credible witness typically has little to gain for testifying. And their story will make sense in light of their own actions. That is, their words and their actions don't contradict one another. And in addition, a credible witness will seem sincere, honest, open. And there's probably some excitement and some enthusiasm when they give their testimony. A credible witness will look you straight in the eye because they don't have anything to hide. God charges us through Peter to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your glor- uh, good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Amen. Some years ago, I, I was called for jury duty uh, downtown Chicago, and I actually ended up being impaneled to sit on the jury. And a key witness, the key witness really, in the case we heard exhibited only one of these four characteristics. She had the courage to testify, but she didn't do it with conviction. Her story was not clear or coherent. The details didn't make sense. She seemed confused, and there were conflicting parts to her tale. And worst of all, she just simply wasn't credible. There was no energy or no animation in her testimony. She wouldn't look up at either of the attorneys or the jury. She had just a completely emotionless affect as she sat in the witness chair and and stared basically at, at the floor in front of her feet. She didn't give us any reason to believe her story. And so we found ourselves with reasonable doubt about the truth of what had happened. Frankly, it's hard enough to get someone to acknowledge that they are a sinner in need of a Savior let alone to believe that Jesus was God himself come in the flesh to die for their sin without us being a personal impediment to that process. Because we're not credible as a witness. And being a credible witness also involves us having our lives line up with our words. If we say that we are a follower of Jesus, how much do we resemble him in the way we speak and the way we act? 
I saw a bumper sticker years ago. If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's a good question. That's why we need to be ready, willing, and able to share. Here's an important point, though. Remember that you are a witness, not a prosecuting attorney, and certainly not the judge. Okay? We're called to be witnesses. We're not called to be prosecuting attorneys, and we are not, <laughs> not the judge. Our job is to tell what we know, Amen. what we've seen, what we've heard and experienced, and we're to do this with gentleness and respect, not to beat people over the head with how bad we think their sin is compared to where we are these days. Right. We're to share the bad news of humanity's sin problem. But it's got to be shared as a problem that included us. And then with genuine compassion and concern, we can share the good news of what Jesus did to resolve our sin problem and what he will do for them if they will turn to him in faith. We're called to speak the truth in love, not in self-righteousness. Joe Aldrich was the former president of Multnomah Bible College out in Portland. He once said, Christians should be the good news before they share the good news. Bottom line, God promises divine power to his witnesses, but we can hinder the flow of that power by our lack of personal credibility and how we go about sharing the gospel. Next fact we need to remember as we witness is this. We are to spread the good news near and far. Okay? We're to spread the good news near and far. Second half of verse 8. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What God is essentially saying there is Christians are to continue to widen our efforts to influence others as much as possible. So first he speaks of Jerusalem. That talks about those who are closest to us. For CBC, it would be those who come through our door to attend our services and perhaps those who live in the blocks immediately around the church. For us individually, it would start in our homes or perhaps our workplaces. It's the places that we spend most of our time. Second, he mentions Judea. That goes a bit wider. For Central, we would consider perhaps the, the um, three-mile radius around our church. Nearly 300,000 people live within a three-mile radius of our church. That's our Judea. There's another 100,000 added to that if we go out to five miles, by the way. As individuals, it would be those then that we would have more casual contact with, neighbors, acquaintances, maybe a, a food server, and so on. The third area that Jesus mentions is Samaria. And Samaria goes even farther away, perhaps outside of our immediate surrounding communities. But really, more than speaking of distance, there's a cultural issue involved in our discussion of reaching Samaria. 
Remember that the Samaritans were despised by the Jews. They saw them as impure half-breeds, unworthy of God's blessings. Jews would go miles out of their way to avoid setting foot on Samaritan soil. So who is it that we don't think that God maybe could save or maybe doesn't want to save someone he shouldn't save? Maybe it's someone in prison. Maybe it's someone of a different ethnicity or skin color. God wants to witness to them as well. His plan of salvation includes everyone. All the way out to the ends of the earth. Obviously, that's just what it says. People from every tribe and tongue all around the globe, God wants to include in the multitude who will worship one day at his throne in heaven. We reach them primarily through missionaries. Not all are called to go, but Central does have a rich history of supporting missionaries who are reaching the world with the gospel in a wide variety of settings and countries. We're going to have our annual... uh, It's not quite annual. What what do you call a a year and a half? (laughs) I don't know if there's a word for that. Every 18 months or so, we have a missions conference to, to present some of our missionaries to everyone, and this time we'll be focusing on our local area, uh, our Jerusalem and our Judea. But approximately 12% of our total annual budget goes to support missionaries here and around the world. You can designate that on your checks as you give uh, if you want to make sure that we're uh, supporting them well. There's a, a big map right on the wall on the other side of this uh, this wall that has pictures of the various ministries and uh, missionaries that we support. We do this because we are to spread the good news near and far. Final fact that we want to keep in mind is this. Christ's return is imminent. It means it could happen at any moment. Therefore, the time to witness is short. Okay? Christ's return is imminent. Nothing further has to happen in the biblical prophecies before Christ can return to catch up his church. Therefore, the time to witness is short. Look at verse 9. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, angels actually, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus said of himself, the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Paul warns, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. 
This includes you because you've believed our testimony to you. And again, in the book of the Revelation, Jesus declares, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. That was 2,000 years ago, friends. And the way the world is going, it's got to be soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Christ's return is imminent, so the time to witness is short. Those that we love and we care about will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and will be punished with everlasting fire unless they receive him, they repent and receive him before they die or before he returns. There can be no greater incentive than this for us to be the witnesses that he calls us to be because God's plan to save people requires human witnesses. Let's pray. Lord, we confess to you that these are frightening things to us, that we are hesitant to open our mouths too many times. Lord, you give opportunities and we just let them pass. Help us to be motivated, to be ready, to be willing, to be able to share the good news, the euangelion, of what Jesus has done for us and has done for anyone who will put their faith and trust in him. Lord, help us to be the witnesses you call us to be, for we pray it in Jesus' name.